Hey moms, welcome to this episode of the Dorenda Wilson podcast. I'm Dorenda Wilson, wife to one, mom to eight, nana to nine, and 28-year veteran homeschooling mom. I'm also the author of three books, The Unhurried Homeschooler, a simple, mercifully short book on homeschooling, The Four-Hour School Day, How You and Your Kids Can Thrive in the Homeschool Life, and Unhurried Grace for a Mom's Heart, 31 Days in God's Word. I hope you'll check all three of those books out. If you haven't already, go to DorendaWilson.com or to Amazon, and you can find The 4-Hour School Day at any of your favorite booksellers, in addition to the places that I just mentioned. I also wanted to let you know that I've got half a dozen more events on the schedule, and I hope that you'll check out the link that I'm going to include in the show notes that tell you where these events are and links to them. And hopefully, possibly, we can actually meet in person. So I'll leave a link for that. Finally, um, the the next event that I'm doing, I want to make sure that I highlight, and that is an event near Boston, Massachusetts. It is a just a morning mini conference, and I'll leave a specific link for that as well if you're in the area. I would love for you to come and join us for that morning. Lastly, I want to make sure that you know about CTC Math. Um, I recently got this email from a mom who said this. She said, I took a leap of faith and tried CTC Math for the kids. I kept hearing you talk about it on your podcast. Our lives are so much better with this incredible program. My kids beg to do their math lessons first, and it has freed me up to work with the other kids more intentionally because I'm not struggling to teach concepts to frustrated children. It is a wonder. I was planning to pay for a math tutor to come over to help, and now I don't have to search for one. Thank you. And I've already told all my homeschool mom friends about CTC Math. So moms, check out CTC Math at ctcmath.com. I will leave a link in the show notes. Okay. Okay, so last week we shared an episode titled, Are We Living in the Last Days? And then on Monday, we shared another called Living with Hope When the Church Says It's Only Going to Get Worse. Now, my intention in doing these episodes was to present another biblical perspective on the end times that many have not heard about because we've never been taught anything different. Um, to clarify, there are three, basically three views on the end times premillennialism, which is what almost all of us have been taught exclusively, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And the last two that I mentioned, they're very similar in a lot of ways. So prior to about 100 years ago, all three of those views were known to and held by the church and her theologians. And I think that's worth noting. This means that throughout all of church history, believers were knowledgeable about all three perspectives. Now, I don't know about you, but that alone gives me a reason to pause. Of course, a topic like this does not go undebated. <laughs> and many great and highly respected Bible teachers differ on their views of the end times. For instance, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur held differing views, and yet they had a very robust and amiable relationship. They have left great examples for us to follow in recognizing that this topic is broad and deep and there is biblical grounding for each perspective, but also that we can agree to disagree. At the end of the day, we are all on the same team, and I think it's important to remember that. Now, Wes and I did not plan to do a, th a third episode, but there were so many mostly positive responses, but also some questions that we felt were important to answer. So please bear in mind that we are trying to cram a lot into one episode. Our hope is to answer some of the most common questions that might be asked, but there is no possible way for us to answer all of them. So our encouragement to you is to look at the list of resources in the show notes and pursue a study on your own. We've shared some very helpful resources that were written in what I would call layman's terms. In other words, they're easy to read and understand for those of us who don't have a theology degree. Now, our intention is not to confuse or anger anyone. It is simply to offer a biblically sound perspective that you may not have heard simply because you were born in the last hundred years. That's not your fault. <laughs> That's not my fault. <laughs> On a personal note, this perspective has really put wind in my sails in terms of being passionate about continuing to invest in the kingdom in multiple ways right here and right now and seeing the hardships that we're facing and may face as part of a grand ultimate story of complete and utter conquest. It has filled me with faith and drawn my eyes to focus on Jesus as king of both heaven and earth. So 
Here we go. Wes is joining us because I'm actually more of a student than a teacher when it comes to this topic. (laughs) So I'm thankful he agreed to come back and help wrap some things up. And if you don't know Wes, uh, he is one of the elders at our church, husband and homeschooling father of four, real technically five. One is on the way. Yay. Um, He joined us for several episodes uh, over, gosh, the last couple of years. And he's always a favorite guest. Um, I love his candid and solid biblical explanations for the topics that we've covered. And I'm just going to mention a few because you might want to go back and listen. Applying Romans 13 to the here and now, which we did in the middle of COVID. Uh, The importance of a biblical education, the biblical importance of family, recognizing false teachers, the dangers of a self-help culture, how to find a biblical church, biblical discipline, and biblical submission. So I will leave links in the show notes to each of those episodes so you can go back and listen if you would like to. Okay, Wes, you ready for this? I'm ready. All right. So we're <laughs> going to do this in more like a Q&A type of thing since we did get so many questions and Wes wanted to make sure that we addressed specifically the more common yeah. ones. Okay. So we're going to start out talking about the book of Revelation. So if Revelation isn't talking about the end of time yet to come, what age is it talking about? Yeah, yeah. No, great question. So the book of Revelation is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily about the end of the Old Covenant. Mm-hmm. It's about the passing away of the old Israel and the coming down of the new Israel out of the clouds. And those who have read through the book of Revelation will be at least familiar with that imagery of the new Jerusalem or the new Israel coming down out of the, the clouds. Uh, but before that can happen, old Israel has to be removed. Right. Old Israel has to get out of the way, so to speak. Right. Uh, and so that's primarily what the book of Revelation is about, which is right in line with all of the passages that we read in the first uh, podcast about an end that was soon to come. We read all of those passages that were littered with language about uh, an end being at hand, uh, something happening within that generation. Right. There's all this imminence of something big is about to happen. And the book of Revelation actually opens by picking up that exact same thread, which is why chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to John to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the book of Revelation opens by picking up that same thread of imminence. Something is coming. It's going to be big. And that something had already been defined in the other writings that had been written before the book of Revelation right. itself. Right. Now, we had someone say, and so I, th- I think this is a good place to, to plug this in, that the book of Revelation was written in 95 AD, which would be <laughs> after the fall of Jerusalem. So right. explain the problem sure. with that. Yeah. And I'd say, uh, number one, that is hotly debated. Mm. Uh, and most scholars, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for, I don't want to speak for every scholar. I, I'd say most recent scholars mm-hmm. hold to a late date of revelation. So if you just do a Google search on when was Which the revelation, I did. It, and that is exactly what it yeah, told me. It'll say 95. It AD. did. Yep. yep. But you have to dig a little bit further and try to figure out why. Like, what's the source that they're using to determine the dating? And when you're dating a book of the Bible, there are two things that you're looking at. One is internal evidence, and and the second is external evidence. So what's in the work itself that would give us some indication of the time period? That can be allusions to something that was happening in, say, Ephesus, and then we can say, okay, well, that was happening around this period of time. So as a marker of internal evidence, this sentence puts us about this period of time. And then there's also external evidence in that if you have people who are close to the first century making reference to a particular work and giving you a timeline for it, that would be uh, evidence outside of the text itself. Uh, and so the, the advocates of the late date basically have zero internal evidence that they point to mm. for the late date. And they have one primary piece of external evidence. And it's an ambiguous quote from a guy named Irenaeus who references the emperor Domitian reigning during the period of time when John was writing the book of Revelation. And we know that given when Domitian was reigning, that would have put it after the fall of Jerusalem. Right. And so so that's what they have. But if you go back and read the quote, you'll notice that it can be interpreted different ways. It's not like a slam dunk, you know, right. we made the argument. But the other problem with it is that Irenaeus said lots of things that we actually do just know straight up were wrong. For instance, he said that Jesus died when he was 50. Which that alone would change the timeline. 
Well, yeah, Correct. that is true. I mean, yeah, yeah, that is I mean, true in that it would push it out further. Right, yeah, right. Now, now that's definitely true. Um, but most people are going to reject Irenaeus on right. the age that Jesus was when he died. But if his citation about the book of Revelation fits their eschatological persuasion, then they'll claim him on that one. Right, right, <laughs> right. got it. And so it's sort of like selective. Yeah, I like Irenaeus here, but not here. Right, <laughs> you know? got it. Okay, um, thank so you. That's thank what you for they, that explanation. Uh, yeah, so that's how they, how they arrive at it. Um, and so I would take the position, as many, many, many scholars do, that there's an early date for the book of Revelation. In fact, a lot of apologists make a really compelling case for the fact that the entire New Testament was written before 70 AD. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's something that they find very useful in arguing for the truthfulness of Scripture when it comes to like manuscript tradition, manuscript evidence, because basically people are always attacking the truthfulness of the Bible. But if you can say we have attestation to all of these things within a generation of the events having taken place, that is a, that's like a slam dunk for the historicity of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Because for, for writings like the, the writings of Plato, for example, we don't have any of it written down until many, 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 almost 900 years after Plato was supposed to, to have lived before anything's written down. Wow. But all the things that Jesus did within a generation, we've got all of it documented in the mm. New Testament documents. And so uh, that becomes uh, something that you'll hear apologists talk about a lot. And they're going to argue for all of the New Testament having been completed before 70 AD. Okay. So, that's an, that's that is, I think, a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. So, no doubt. No okay. Doubt. So if Revelation isn't talking about the end of time yet to come, what age is it talking about? Yes. So opens with the same eminence that we introduced to your listeners in that first podcast that they're looking toward the close of the old covenant age. They're looking for the passing away of the old Israel and the coming of the new Israel. And uh, again, that eminence gets picked up right there in verse one, where he even says, the things I'm about to tell you, quote, must soon or shortly take place uh, in the same way that uh, the apostles had been writing. Um, And so some examples of that, one really good one is uh, Revelation chapter six, verses nine through 11. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves had been killed. Now put that together with other things that Jesus has said in his teaching ministry, namely Matthew 23, when he says, on you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now Jesus just said, this generation is going to receive God's vengeance for the blood of all of the martyrs from Abel up to this period of time. And then you've got John in the book of Revelation, and here are these martyrs who are saying to the Lord, how long before you avenge our blood? Because what they're talking about is the the, the New Testament is it's covenant documents. It's covenant documents written to a covenant people. And uh, under that covenant, there were a lot of faithful covenant-keeping Jews who throughout Israel's history had been killed, martyred, raped over the coals Mm -hmm. by unfaithful covenant Jews. And they're saying, how long are you going to let this stand? And now the most egregious atrocity of all has occurred, that being the murder by those those of that same spirit of the Son of God himself. Mm-hmm. And so these martyrs are saying, how much longer before you light these people up? Right. And John says to them, a little while longer. Mm. You wait a little while longer because that judgment and that destruction of these covenant breakers who have been murdering and persecuting is about to come to an end. God's going to end it. Uh, and so that's just to say that the book of, that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about when there's going to be an end to the wickedness that had grown up among old covenant Israel. And you can see that this takes shape all through Jesus' ministry, the way that he's talking about a brood of vipers, the way that he's always talking about the way that the temple had been desecrated and they've departed. And, and of course, all of, the, all of the language of destruction that is soon to be coming, that's what the book of Revelation is about, which is why it has the same time indicators 
that we read in the epistles and in the gospels, and mm-hmm. it opens with them, and mm-hmm. they're in the middle, and it ends with one as well. I, so, I love that continuity because I know f- in my understanding, everything just seems so fragmented mm. before. And so to just to have the continu- continuity of scripture, which we all would say is there, and yet when it comes to this topic— Maybe not so much, depending sure. on your perspective. Um, yeah. so, the, uh, so a couple of passages that have people have asked about mm. um, when it says uh, there's two in a field and then one is gone or uh, you would be unable to buy or sell without worshiping the beast. Sure. Sure. So can you just address yeah. those two things? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So one of those comes from Matthew 24. The other one comes from Revelation chapter okay. 13. Okay. Um, and so in, in Matthew 24, that's when we get the the two in a field. One will be taken. Somebody's going to be at the mill and another one's going to be taken. And this is one of the uh, kind of proof texts that people will use for the rapture. Right. You know, you know, they'll say. Well, and we've seen it visually in the movies. Oh, yeah. Th- that kind of thing. So it's very much cemented into our brains. So that's immediately the picture we get. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we have to pay attention, as always, to the context. And one of the backdrops for this is the parable of the wheat and the tares that Jesus has, has already told. And then he's returning to that language to talk about somebody in a field and somebody's going to be taken. Right. But even beyond that context, which we just really honestly probably don't have time to get into. Right. Uh, be, but beyond that context is the immediate context. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah when some people were swept away, despite the fact that they were just going about their normal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so what that does demonstrably and inescapably is it means that you can't be talking about the removal of the righteous or the church, Mm. because that's not what the sign of Noah was. Mm. If it's going to be like the days of Noah, who gets removed? Who gets wiped off of the earth? It's the wicked so that the righteous can inherit the land. And so he's telling us the framework in with which we should be interpreting this. And so what it's talking about is a removal of the wicked, particularly wicked Jewish covenant breakers, because Mm. again, these are covenant Uh documents Uh and there's a foretold judgment of old covenant Israel, particularly in Joel chapter two, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, and in Malachi chapter four. Those are all good texts to to look at, especially if this concept of the destruction of God's own people is maybe unfamiliar to people. Mm -hmm. But again, go back and read your Old and New Testament with this looking for this theme of God's destruction of his people. It's all over the place. If you are unfaithful, this is what I'm going to do with you. Right. Which is why when John the Baptist comes up, comes on the scene, what's the first thing out of his mouth in Matthew's gospel? The ax is laid at the root of the tree. That's how he starts his ministry. Right. The judgment is about to come. And, and so this is the Olivet Discourse where this passage happens, which is a judgment passage. Mm-hmm. And then he says, it's just like Noah, which is a judgment story. And what happens in that story? Yeah, there are people who are working, going about their normal life, and then they get swept away. But who gets swept away? It's the wicked who gets swept away. So the, the verse is talking about the sweeping away of the wicked people so that the righteous can remain. That's what that's what the text is about. Okay. Okay. Um buying and selling uh was, was that the second was that yeah, the second unable one? to buy or sell without worshiping yes. the beast. So now we're at uh and and maybe if I can maybe I can even rope in two two things that are really important here. One would be the identity of the beast. And right. two would be the mark of the beast. And so obviously these are, you know, uh, <laughs> just in the popular, you know, right. uh, people will get a receipt. And if there's something on it that says 666, they're like, you know, they get that weird feeling. And they're like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, maybe, you know, should I get rid of this? Whatever. Um, and so uh, the identity of the beast and the mark of the beast both come to us in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. So I'll read that okay. those verses. Um, also it, that being the beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, the first thing that we have to do there before we start playing fanciful games and, you know, wondering which political figure this might be, you know, or is it Donald Trump as everybody was talking about in like 2016, (laughs) you know, whatever. And I actually did listen to uh, some sermons from pastors who were saying that, yeah, you know, the the beast is, is Donald Trump. Um, 
Anyway, one of the things that's plain in the reading of those verses is that John knew who the beast was. That's obvious. John knew who the beast was, and he goes so far as to tell his readers that they could figure out who he was too if they calculated the number of his name. Now, that's something that is uh, commonly ignored when you're talking about this whole idea of the beast and and the mark of the beast, um, because that definitively puts you in the first century, because this is a man, he says, this is a man, and it's a man who he's saying, you can figure out who he is, you first century, seven churches to whom he addressed the letter, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so this puts us in the first century, and when you calculate the number of the beast, you come to the name Nero Caesar. Now, the way that that's done is something called gematria, and it was really, really normal in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. All this seems very strange to us and, 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 you know, like super like spy-like or, you know, we have to hunt for these things. Um, but that's just because we don't do them. You right. Know? They Different would think culture. that a ton of things about mm-hmm. our culture and way of living were weird too, you know. Right. Um, but it was totally normal in antiquity for you to assign a numerical value to someone's name uh, because the letters of the alphabet had numerical values assigned to them. And this is in, incredibly well documented in, in the city of, of Pompeii, for instance, where Mount Vesuvius erupted. And so there's been a lot of, uh, you know, excavation there and, and all those sorts of things. We, we've even found graffiti where people will declare their love for each other. And they'll do it by saying, I love, uh, you know, like my love for the woman. And then they'll put a number like mm. five, four, six, uh-huh. you know, and we're like, that's a really weird thing to do. But in fact, it wasn't for them because that's the numerical value of her name. Okay. Right? Okay. Uh, and so that's what, what John is doing. He's saying, one, uh, this guy, I'm talking about a current figure in the first century, and you guys can figure out who he is if you calculate the number of his name. You run that calculation. You get Nero Caesar. The beast of Revelation is wow. Nero. And if that sounds strange to you, too— We also have to remember that the book of Revelation is the book that is most replete with Old Testament symbolism and imagery. Mm. If you don't know your Old Testament well, then Revelation is an absolutely inaccessible book to you. Right. Uh, But one of the things that you'll notice if you read your Old Testament carefully is that the, the, the beasts of the Old Testament are always oppressive governmental regimes. That's why in Daniel's book— for instance, mm-hmm. it's uh, there's a bear and there's a lion and there's an eagle. And all of these things are emblems for what? Well, Daniel tells us they're different empires that are coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a beast uh, in Ezekiel, he talks about Egypt and he talks about it in terms of it being a beast. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. in, in the Old Testament's language, a beast is an oppressive government that demands the hearts and souls and allegiance to its people as if it is God or Mm. as if its ruler is Mm -hmm. divine. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you've studied Rome well, you know that this is all around the period of time where the cult of emperor worship was on the rise and Nero was beginning to demand that Christians say Caesar is Lord and give a pinch of incense. Uh, We're getting whiffs of that in our own government. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just after the last few years, uh, you know, basically saying you— it doesn't matter who you are. You're the church. We don't care. Yep. We're telling you, don't open your doors. Mm-hmm. Don't worship on Sundays, you know? Yep. And there was a penalty to pay for that. Correct. And Correct. so yeah. it's so fascinating. Yeah. I, I, you told me this the other day. It was just blew my mind. It, it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been how many oppressive governments over right. the course of history. It's just, it's a pattern. It's a cycle. Yeah. And I love that the Bible speaks to it. Yeah, Absolutely. And that really does answer the question of what is this mark of the beast Mm -hmm. then? Uh, And again, Old Testament cracks the code for us because what John says is the beast causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, uh, well, I'll I'll explain what that means first. Um, So we shouldn't be thinking in terms of a physical mark. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be some people who want to say, well, you're spiritualizing the text. You know, it says a mark on your forehead Mm -hmm. or or on your hand or on your forehead. Uh, So how can you say that it's not a literal physical mark? And it's because I want to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Right. Uh, And so where do we see a marking on the forehead 
or on the hand? Well, the first place that we see it is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, a familiar text for most of us. Mm -hmm. But then here's verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, which mm. is to say your forehead. Your forehead, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so God didn't literally mean for them to write down the commandments he had just given and try to fix something that large on their hand right. or on their forehead. The idea is, hey, the things that I have told you are supposed to have governance of your mind and invade your thinking, mm -hmm. and then those things are supposed to be exercised in your hands, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That I'm Lord, I'm God, I've got control of your head and your hands, mm -hmm. right? That That's the idea. Mm -hmm. But what these oppressive governments and what Nero was beginning to require was that he be regarded as the God. Right. That he right. be the one who has control of your head and your hands. Mm. And that's what he was demanding if you were going to be able to survive in his empire, mm -hmm. which is why he, of course, ended up slaughtering so many Christians mm -hmm. because they, in fact, would not take that mark. Right, right, right. Wow, I love the consistency of the language. Mm -hmm. That's, what a gift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But boy, you gotta know your Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, someone asked, were you saying that specific passages were just referring to the 40-year period after Christ died? Um, I'm not sure if they're referring to Revelation. I think they might be referring to Revelation. Um, that's the question, I think, because it did, it did fall under that category. Were you saying that specific passages were just referring to the 40-year period after Christ died? Mm -hmm. So I think... You sort of answered that question. You sure. said most of Revelation mm -hmm. was before the fall yes. of Jerusalem. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think they're they're probably asking both in terms of like the, you know. When Stuff we drop, in the Gospels. Yeah, okay. exactly. Like okay. when we drop the kinds of bombs that right. we drop, right. you know, where it's like, okay, there's all of this specificity to that generation. To that, to that group of people. Right. I think the question is, so what's left for us? Yeah, is there, I, I think you're right. Is there anything left that talks about the time that most people are talking about when they describe the end of right. times? Exactly, okay. exactly. And so that, that's, how I, that's how I'd take the question. And, uh, and, and if, that's, if that is what the questioner intends, then I'd say what's, what's applicable to us well, actually, first, let me say this. It's all applicable to Absolutely. us. Absolutely, yes. Because if we want to say that if some of these things have been fulfilled in our past, then, like, what's the point? You right. know, as if I'm uh, making the Bible irrelevant by right. saying that some of it has happened already, then we would have already had to have gotten rid of our Old Testament. Mm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because all of us know that all of that is far beyond us. All of the Messianic prophecies, right, already fulfilled. Right. But that doesn't mean that they have no meaning or right. significance or exactly. points of application. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's one thing that can be, uh, okay, we can take a deep breath because we have a whole t a whole bunch of texts that all of us, every Christian in every epoch of time would agree, these things have been fulfilled. Right. This is in our past. And yet, that's actually why we have hope for the future, not why we have a mass of irrelevant passages because they've already happened. Mm -hmm. It's actually the fact that they've happened that makes them so powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that, for, for whatever that's worth. Um, but um, in terms of now I lost my train of thought. Okay, on, <laughs> so uh, are there oh, any passages what, what's left? What's relevant to yeah. us then? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Or what's in our future? What you, hasn't Yeah, because everything yet. is relevant. Yes, yeah, um, exactly. And you yes. had said, just, just real quickly, I know you explained this to me personally the other day, you said that um, because it has all happened, what does make it, why does that make it so powerful? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think what we just talked about with the mark of the beast is a great example of how these things having been fulfilled is the thing that makes them helpful to us. Mm. Because if I can if I can read my Bible, I would argue consistently. Um, that's not to denigrate somebody who takes a different reading of the text. We can still be brothers and sisters in Christ, et cetera. But, but if you take that reading and see the consistency that hopefully I just demonstrated, then now I have a way of orienting myself mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. here and now mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. those things are behind me as an example. Right. And so now when somebody, if I can even use the inflammatory example go for of it. what happened in COVID. <laughs> we're, we're into this. Yeah, exactly, So just go right? for okay. it. So yeah, I, I had, as probably every pastor did, mm -hmm. Uh, 
who had a congregation who was paying any attention at all to current events, I got a ton of questions like, is the vaccine the mark of the beast? Right. And and I was able to say quite legitimately, because of my understanding of the past fulfillment of a lot of things we're talking about, Mm -hmm. I was able to say it is a mark of a beast. Right. Because I know what a beast is biblically, and it's an oppressive state that requires more of you than would be conscionable if you actually want to follow God and not worship the state. Right. Right. Uh, And so if they're saying, yeah, you can't go to your job and you can't interact normally in society and you're not going to be able to travel without a vaccine passport or whatever, that's an that's a beast. Right. And this is one of the marks that it's requiring. Mm. And those are things that we know from Scripture we should be pressing back against. Right. And so that was incredibly helpful because otherwise I don't know how to orient myself yes. and make sense of all of yeah. that. Yeah, and I think that's really the key to why we were doing these episodes yeah. is because when all this started to happen when over the last three years, that's when my shift in thinking changed and I was able— to reorient myself mm-hmm. to what was happening. And I actually knew what I was supposed to be doing yeah. in those yeah. circumstances. And because I think a lot of believers found themselves lost yeah, and just like, I don't even know what to do with this. Yeah, and, because I mean, think about it. If all you've got is Romans 13 telling you seemingly to obey the yes, governing authorities, yes. but you don't have a concept for what a beast is and what his marks look like, mm-hmm. then you don't have anything to counterbalance that. Right. And everybody just goes and rolls up their sleeve. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And so you need this for the sake we of do. your orientation. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, to put a point on the question, uh, so what is yet to happen yes. in our future? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not arguing that all biblical prophecy has been fulfilled. Right. I'm arguing that far more of it than most moderns acknowledge has been fulfilled. I'm not saying that all of it has been fulfilled. There is yet a final return of Christ mm-hmm. that is in our future, mm-hmm. but I would place that at the end of him putting all of his enemies under his feet. Right. And I get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which says he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last of those enemies is death. So we're saying Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, to his coronation Mm -hmm. as king. And he tells us that. All authority on heaven and earth is mine. And what he's doing now is he's reigning and ruling the nations through his church as he sent us to take them over in his name. Mm -hmm. And he's going to subdue all of those enemies under his feet through his body, the church. That's in our future, and that's a biblical prophecy. And then at the end of that conquest, he will return personally, bodily, truly, and he will put a final end to death itself. Mm-hmm. All of that is mm-hmm. in our future, mm-hmm. and it is a glorious future mm-hmm. that I'm greatly looking forward to. Yeah, and it's a, like I said, putting it puts the wind in your sails to move forward. We're part of something, we're part of a conquest. And so yep. every day, as we're living out, you know, through our head, you know, head and hands, you were talked about that earlier, mm-hmm. um, we, you know, in, within the four walls of our homes and out from there, we're part of that conquest Yes, as we're instilling God's word in ways into our kids. We're um, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're submitting to our husbands. We're encouraging him to lead. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's taking that leadership, you know, and, yep. and, and none of us are doing this perfectly, but it is a acceptable offering to the Lord yeah. and it, it pleases him and it does move us forward. And mm-hmm. I think that was key. That's really the message I wanted mom specifically to get because they're constantly being told that motherhood is kind of like pointless when you change right. 10 diapers a day. What was the point? You know, <laughs> right. when all of a sudden, when you're thinking changes that all, every single bit, every little bit of it counts, mm-hmm. it changes your perspective completely. Yep. And that's really like at the end of the day, out of all the stuff we've talked about, that's the message that I wanted the moms to get. And so I love that we're, we're kind of bringing things back around to that after all of our discussions. Yep. All right. So I appreciate the way you like laid out the, it's because some were asking like, so what does this timeline look like? It was confusing to them. If he isn't coming back right away, what then, you know, so appreciate you laying that, that out. Um, okay. Uh, any references in the New Testament revelation that are referring to anything other than the end of the old covenant age? I think you said, sure. yes, yeah, there are that. some, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but more are not. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yep. Um, and then you talked about the mark of the beast. Um, I don't know. I, I think everybody's pretty familiar with the common pre-mill perspective versus the post-mill. I think you kind of described sure. that. We're seeing it as, you know, oh, we're actually going to get a mark and we're not going to mm-hmm. be able to eat and buy and sell and all of that if we don't get that And let me be super clear. 
Um, I'm not saying that it's impossible for that to happen oh, or that no. no government would try it. Well, I'm just saying that <laughs> if that happens, it's not what John was talking about. Right. Because John places himself, uh, I think, uh, I don't think that you can make an argument from these verses that John is talking about something that is in 2,000 years. Right. You know, that away. wasn't in it's, his. It's imminent. Right. He knows who the beast is. Mm -hmm. And those group of people are the one who are going to have to deal with the beast that John is talking about. And that, That's not to say there aren't any other beasts. Yeah. That's not to say that there are no other marks that these other sure, beasts would require. absolutely. It's just to say that now we have an example of that and we know how to identify them. Yeah, right? I love that. That's so great. Okay, so a question, what about the Antichrist? And then maybe mm -hmm. um, sharing common pre-mill perspective, kind of yeah. what we all know versus yeah. post-mill, what we've been talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the, the common approach to the Antichrist is actually to conflate him with the beast of Revelation. Uh, because these are actually two separate figures in two separate books. Uh, and so in 1 John, now I will grant, same author, which is one of the ways that people justify the conflation. Right, right, right. right. Um, so John wrote three epistles. John wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, and so when they see this language of an antichrist in his epistles, and then they see this language of a beast in Revelation, they assume that we're talking about the same figure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, don't, I don't believe that they are. Uh, I believe truthfully that the Antichrist, which in John, in the second chapter of John's first epistle, he does indicate is, again, a figure that he is a contemporary of, not a figure that is far off in the future. Mm. Um, but uh, so, so that to the side, it's just to say we're still talking about the first century and current events to John's day. Um, but I, I truthfully believe that as you look at the way that his uh, epistles flow out and what he's attacking— He's attacking a heresy called Gnosticism mm. that was uh, really rampant in the first century and in the early church. Uh, and it's in that context that he talks about the Antichrist. And so truthfully, I, I believe that it's more consistent interpretively since he's anchored us to the first century, since the Antichrist is a first century figure, and he's talking about the doctrine that the Antichrist is teaching, and it's Gnosticism— if we do some historical research, we find out that guy has a name, and that name was Serenthus. And he was the guy who was really heading up this whole movement that was sweeping a lot of people into the Gnostic heresy. For the sake of time, I won't get into all the details of that heresy, but that's what I understand him to be talking about. And okay. that's who I understand the Antichrist You can't to be. give Gnosticism like a brief— uh, Basically, it's the idea that— um, all that is good in the world is spiritual, and physicality is inherently evil. Right. Uh, that that's really right. the the short version. Of okay. It. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So they're not the same. Right. They're, right. They're two different. Separate. Two different figures. Yep. Two different figures. But they were both. Well, there's many beasts, and the Antichrist was that specific person. Yeah, and, and John also says that many antichrists have come. Mm -hmm. So there are always going to be antichrists, right. and there are always going to be beasts. Right. I remember in the New Testament, there's there was uh, it was referred to as the spirit of the antichrist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's also something that's very prevalent. Yep. And we, you know, you see that, we see it all around us. Yep. You know, just that, re that just rebellion mm -hmm. against, against and God. And that's another, another good point here too, is, uh, the fact that the Bible often has, uh, multiple fulfillments of its prophecies. Mm -hmm. So for instance, uh, Matthew applies Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14 to Jesus, uh, which is a passage about the virgin birth, but there was already a fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah's contemporaries day. And everybody who was reading their Old Testament knew that. And so it was actually kind of surprising for them when Isaiah reapplies that prophecy to Jesus. But he's saying there, there's more. There's, in, in fact, an even greater manifestation of that. And so that's just something uh, that probably if people will like look at the resources that you have in the show notes and stuff, they'll see that there is such a thing as dual and even triple fulfillments of right. various prophecies, which is another one of the reasons that we wouldn't say uh, that we shouldn't expect to continue to see some of these patterns right, unfolding. Right, right, right. There, there are things that look similar to what happened then and what was talked about Correct. then. Okay, Correct. so I, I'm not, I didn't quite track with you on the virgin birth thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so, it sounds like you said there were two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's okay, what I'm saying. explain that. And what I mean by that is 
there was, now I don't take it to be a miraculous virgin birth in the exact same way as we look at Jesus' birth. But what you find as you dig into Isaiah chapter 7 is that this was God giving a sign to Israel that he wasn't going to destroy them. I think it was the Assyrians at the time. And he was saying, I'm not going to destroy you. Their army was getting ready to to, to take out the Israelites. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm going to give you a sign. And as the language goes, uh, the, well, I should say this too, that word, virgin that's used there mm-hmm. can be translated as young woman or it can be translated as um wife okay and so that that's a, an interesting thing that also uh, the ambiguity of the language allows for it to be fulfilled okay. in more than one sense got it and uh there was a person who had that child and the Jews took it as, okay, this is God's sign that he's not going to destroy us. And in fact, at that point in time in history, he didn't mm. because they had received the sign. But then Isaiah says, there's a more significant battle that needs to be fought. And there's a more significant foe. And there's a more significant fulfillment of this prophecy. And there's a more significant right. virgin birth. And it's in this man. Right. So Jesus it's like a, um, the the shadow, the, the types and shadows of things to come kind yeah. of thing where that mm-hmm. we see a lot in the Old Testament. Yep. Um, okay. Exactly. Got exactly. it. Exactly. All right. So is the church Israel or is Israel still a people set apart? That was kind of, that yeah. was a, a question I got a few different times. Like, are you saying that Christians have replaced Israel? Is Israel still a set-apart nation? Can you explain your perspective on that? I'd say that uh, Israel has been expanded by God Mm -hmm. to include Gentiles. Right, which would refer like to the grafting that he talks about in the New Testament. that we've been grafted in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And that within this expanded new Israel that includes Gentiles, that the nature of Israel has changed. Uh, which it had to mm-hmm. in order to be as expansive and as inclusive as it is. Uh, and so no longer is Israel a nation state with these very specific borders around it. Right. And yet in First Peter chapter 2, Peter does call us, speaking to Gentiles and Jewish Christians alike, that we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Mm-hmm. And so that language still gets employed and still gets applied. But interestingly, it gets applied to a mixed church that is full of Gentiles. And he calls that Gentile church a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So the priesthood gets expanded. Sacrifices get expanded because under the old system, you've got Levites. Only the sons of Aaron can be priests. But what are what does the New Testament say? Well, under the new covenant, everybody who is a part of the covenant is made a priest. It used to be that only the Levitical priests could offer sacrifices. But what do Paul and Peter tell us, except that we are supposed to come and we're supposed to offer our spiritual sacrifices. So now everybody's a priest. Now everybody is offering sacrifices. And now everybody is built up into a temple, a spiritual temple. And so what I'm saying is the nature of Israel has shifted and changed and been expanded to include Gentiles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and if you really want a slam dunk passage on this, people who want to say, no, the church is the church and Israel is Israel, and there's a separate program and plan for both of them, even under the new covenant, uh, the problem that they're going to run into is Ephesians chapter 6. And we know that if Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, was primarily Gentile. Mm-hmm. And when Paul is dealing with the household in chapter 6, uh, he says— uh, he, he takes a promise from the Old Testament, which was uh, children obey your parents. And there's a, there's a promise attached to the end of that command that you may live long in the land. And he quotes it verbatim, applying that promise to Gentile believers. And, and so one of the things that advocates of the, the separation of, the Israel and, uh, of Israel and the church often make is they say, uh, you can't give Israel's promises away to the church. Like, that's wrong for you to do. That wasn't written to you. That wasn't written for you. That's that's for them, which is also funny because then they'll listen to the eschatology that we just outlined and they'll say, hold on, but what if it applies to us? <laughs> you know, so anyway, that that yeah, is being yeah. not, not neither here nor there. But what he just did is he just took an Old Testament passage written to Jews, promising them the land, and he just gave that promise away to Gentile churches in Ephesus. Mm. And so what do you do with that? 
Well, what you do with that is you take the language seriously that we've been grafted into the olive tree that is Israel. And, you know, these are things for people to study out. There's, there's you know, volumes and volumes and right, volumes right. written on this. But one of the primary convictions of the church and understandings of the church has been that actually it's Jesus who is the true Israel of God. Mm-hmm. He's the one who is the ultimate son who has been called. Uh, and, and that language of I'm going to call my son was originally written to Israel. But then when Matthew's quoting that same verse, he applies it to Jesus. Right, and right. so so he's saying Jesus is really the true Israel. And then what's Paul always saying, except you've got to be in Christ. You've got right. to be in Christ. You've got to be in Christ. Right. Which is to say, there still is no salvation outside of Israel. Right. You've got to be in Israel if you're going to be saved. But to be in Israel is to be in Christ. Right. So okay. there's a All right. medium-sized version. All right. So what about, let's see kind of covered this. Just let, tell me if you did, and maybe you can just recap real quick. What about the rapture and tribulation period, mm. then his second coming and thousand year reign and new heavens and earth? That's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> and then she tacked on also the one world government talked about, which we can see the setup for as we speak, which I feel like that's been a re- on repeat for a while. <laughs> sure, yeah, which <laughs> you know, is why no shortage of books were sold, particularly in the 1970s and 80s, saying, mm-hmm. all right, we're about 10 years out. Right. And then they readjust their calculations right. to say, okay, I was I was wrong there, but if you guys will give me squillions of dollars again, I'll tell you, I'll get it right this time. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. So tell us about that. Yeah, so um, what, was the, what was the first one? What about the rapture okay, and tribulation yeah, period? Okay. Um, so rapture, this will be inflammatory. Sorry. The rapture was totally unheard of and, and, and untaught until around 1825 with mm-hmm. a guy named John Nelson Darby, mm-hmm. who the way that the story goes, and I couldn't corroborate this part, but the way that the story goes is that he heard this doctrine from a 15-year-old girl at a Pentecostal rally while she was like writhing on the floor and was caught up in a vision. Mm-hmm. And that's where he got the clarity of the rapture doctrine. Okay. Um, and so, you know, again, like do with that what you will, but you can trade, you can pinpoint the doctrine of the rapture and it's in the 19th century. Okay. So that's the first big problem with it is right. it's an absolute novelty right. in church history. Right. Um, the, the second really big problem with it is the one passage of scripture that has a prayer of substantiating that doctrine is first Thessalonians chapter four. And a careful consideration of it totally falsifies the position. And it's in First Thessalonians 4 that you have the language of saints being caught up in the air uh, to meet right. Jesus in, right. in the air right. or in the clouds. And, uh, but, and this is super well documented. Like you guys can, you know, corroborate what I'm saying. But when you look at particularly the Greek word for meet him in the air, it's a technical Greek term that referred to a royal dignitary who was returning to a city. And what would happen mm. is the the people who wanted to greet him would actually meet him outside the city, and then they would come in with him as his entourage. Now, the reason that—and so that, that's the way that the term is used mm-hmm. all throughout documented Greek writing and literature. Mm-hmm. And so the burden of proof is certainly going to be on the person who says, but that's not what it means here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. When all of the lexical evidence says that's what it means when this formal term is used. Um, so that's the first thing is the burden of proof would be yours to say that's not what it means here. Um, and so if you just take the meaning that that scholars have derived from that word, if, you, if you're willing to say, OK, yeah, I, I'll take that point. What that does is it immediately falsifies the rapture because that means that this is about the king coming to live with his people. It's not about the king taking his people out of the land. Mm-hmm. But that's what the rapture says is going to happen. Right, right. That's the definition we all Correct. interpret Correct. when we hear the word rapture. Yeah. Wow. And so the language of the one passage that at least when you read it in English initially sounds like it might support the doctrine mm-hmm. upon just a little bit more scrutiny totally falsifies the Right, position. actually does the opposite. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then tribulation period. Yeah. So the tribulation period and, and even dispensational premillennial scholars will tell you this. They'll say that the tribulation is primarily about Israel. If you just look up like John MacArthur's teaching mm-hmm, on this, mm-hmm. he's going to say the tribulation is, uh, is Israel's event. 
Oh, wow. And so most of them wow. are are happy to admit that, that this mm-hmm. is about God judging covenant breakers wow. within the people of Israel. Hmm. Because everybody has to do something with the language of the passages that we've read. Sure. It's just most people push it out to the future. Right. But clearly, God has the Jewish people in mind when he has these, these judgment passages. And so uh, they acknowledge that. Um, but we would say that that tribulation period was the siege of Jerusalem— that's leading up to the decisive end of the Old Covenant era, mm-hmm. which we've mm-hmm. said is the destruction of the mm-hmm. temple, which, in agreement with the dispensational scholars, was an Israel-specific right. event. Right, right, And right. so we're not denying the specificity of that particular event to Old Covenant covenant breakers. Right. And like we said in one of the episodes, that had to happen because the law that they were under demanded that right. it happen. Right, right. Because it was a law that had blessings and curses. Right. Jesus says, Matthew 5, all of these things, this cannot pass away until it's all fulfilled. Well, all fulfilled means even the judgment and the destruction that that law had bound up in it in the event that you broke it. Mm-hmm. And so the tribulation period is that law working itself out, which foretold that tribulation with almost the exact same language that Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse. Mm-hmm. So everybody should 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 go home, or you're probably at home right now listening to this. Everybody should read <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 32. And note the language, note the note the similarity between that language and the Olivet Discourse. Right. And this is just the law saying, yeah, if you break this, here are the things that you're bringing down on your own head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's It was just finally fulfilled. Correct. And yep. the patience of God. Absolutely. Through that whole mm-hmm. process. And that makes so much sense of it what's does. happening in the book of Acts, mm-hmm. too. Why all of the signs? Why all of the wonders? Right. Why all of the miracles? Why all of the healings? It's God making a final appeal. He mm-hmm. said, He said, I'm going to light this generation up. Why to the Jew first and then the Greek? Because the Greeks weren't about to be destroyed by God for their covenant breaking. Mm-hmm. Go to the Jews that some of them might be able to be spared. Right. So anyway, it, it's the the consistency of it right. and the force that it gives the rest of the New Testament documents is is unparalleled in all the other interpretive schemes. Okay. Thousand year reign. Yeah. So the thousand year reign of Christ, there's a, a, a big debate as to whether or not this is a literal 1,000 years. Uh, which the premillennial position would say, yes, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, absolutely, it's 1,000 years, you know, count it, 365 days in a year. You're going to do that 1,000 times, and and that's going to be, you know, this time of peace where Christ is reigning from Zion, you know, on his throne, right, whatever. Right. Um, versus the two other options, which are amillennialism and postmillennialism, both of which would say that that 1,000 years is a, uh, it, it's a symbol for a long period of time, right, and uh, and of course they're not just making that up. No, they're no, saying, I, a verse where came to have him. we seen this? My verse came to my mind right away. Yep, I know which yeah, one it is. Yeah, you say it. Well, it's a thousand years. A day is like a thousand. Oh, okay. A thousand years yeah, yeah, of yeah, the Lord. Yeah, with the Lord, a, a day. A like day a is thousand thousand like a thousand years, and a thousand years, thousand yeah, years yeah, like yeah. a day. Yeah, the ones that came to my mind uh, are God owns the cattle on how many hills. Yeah, it's not just a it's thousand. A thousand. <laughs> that's what he says. <laughs> but, that's, but none of that's us thinks that what... he doesn't own the cattle on the thousand and first hill. Right. Right. And, and you, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that use specifically that number one thousand as a placeholder for a long a, time. A long time. Because or in antiquity, a lot. Mm-hmm. they didn't traffic in really large numbers like we do. True. Today. That's it's true. Just they didn't have calculators. Right. Right. And so by the time you get to a thousand, you're like, okay, I don't really want to count much higher than that. Right. So that'll do. <laughs> that'll do. Yeah. That exactly. Um, and so anyway. Um, the, it, it can be substantiated that the biblical authors use that language of a, of 1,000 okay. to be a placeholder for long, like don't bother counting right. it literally. It's going to be a long time. Okay. Um, and so anyway, um, the, the post-millennial and amillennial schemes would just say uh, Christ is risen and reigning now, and the millennial reign of Christ is a present reality. Okay. However— it grows. Right. It's like a mustard seed, a mustard as we've seed. talked about, mm-hmm. and it works its way out. And this is what the kingdom of God is. And so if we're saying that the millennial reign is Christ's kingdom, and everybody says that, pre-mill, amill, post-mill, the millennial reign is the kingdom of Christ coming to bear on the earth. Uh, but 
we can't ignore all of Jesus' other teaching on the kingdom, which says it's like leaven that works out slowly. It's mm-hmm. like a mustard seed that grows over a period of time. But in the pre-mill scheme, you've just got Jesus comes, and then immediately and automatically, you've got 1,000 years of absolute perfection and peace. But that's not what he said the kingdom was going to be like. He said the opposite. He said it's going to start out small and undetectable. Mm. And then it's going to grow into something that encompasses the entirety of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so, what we're what we're doing as post millennialists is we're taking all of the all of the teaching about the kingdom and we're putting it together rather than just going to one chapter in one book of the Bible and reading it in isolation. Mm. Which, if you if you only have Revelation chapter twenty, sure, I'd be a pre millennialist. Mm-hmm. The problem is I've got all these other passages that tell me about the nature of the kingdom and how it works itself out in history. Mm-hmm that don't square with that view. Right. And so, yeah, thousand-year reign for us, uh, we're saying it's a placeholder for a long period of time. It's happening now as the kingdom is growing now from a mustard seed into a gigantic tree that will one day take over the world. Okay, and so that's where this uh, kind of sarcastic question came in. It, uh, but but legitimate, absolutely legitimate, if you're wondering how this all fits together, is this, suppo- is this supposed to be the awesome golden age of the millennium? <laughs> why has it lasted 2,000 plus years? And why isn't everyone, why isn't it very good and peaceful? Yeah. <laughs> I, legitimate sure. question. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, I, yeah, and I'll, I'll take it as such. Um, and this is why I think that that second episode we did is so important mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it shows you that God promising a thing and you having the fullness of what he promised has something to do with the faithfulness of his people. Mm. You, you can't subtract mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like this position so much is because this is the position that factors in all of the biblical data. Right. 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 Uh, and so what we're not saying is that it doesn't matter how the church lives. It doesn't matter if she's obedient. It doesn't matter if she's doing the things that God has commissioned her to do. Uh, God is just going to uh, fulfill all of these things unilaterally without mm-hmm. any regard mm-hmm. or uh, consideration for mm-hmm. the state of his church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he has explicitly told us the opposite. Right. <laughs> Not only in narrative form in the Old Testament where you see that happening with right. the first wave of his people mm-hmm. that, yeah, I'm going to give you this land. And then how long does it take them to get it? And why did it take so long? Right. And so we're saying we're not taking any of those variables off the table. And that's part of what's at play here. Mm. But then the other thing that we're saying. So you're basically you're saying our obedience matters. Correct. And our disobedience matters. Absolutely. And so that's what's tied into this not being so glorious right now. Correct. And God said that that's what would happen if we disobeyed. Yep, okay. exactly, exactly. Uh, and then you you also put that together with the fact that this is just how God always operates. Mm-hmm. He loves processes. Yes. He loves them. Yes. Uh, why he delights in them so much, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> but <laughs> just trace that theme out. Mm-hmm. It is a major motif mm-hmm. from Genesis through to Revelation. Mm-hmm. He loves a process. And I'd say part of the reason he loves a process is because he wants to make us the kind of people who will enjoy the destination when we get there. Right. Uh, right. Because, and maybe in an, an analogy that I use for this. And some of this also has to do with we have a violent kind of individual orientation mm-hmm, rather mm-hmm. than thinking about a group of people and generations right, and those sorts of things. Right. But in antiquity, they thought in terms of uh, they thought corporately, right, not right. individually. Even when they confessed to the Lord, yeah. it was we have not done this and we have Correct. not done. And I don't think the church has done recently enough of that. Yes. Yep. You know, just basically taking responsibility for the actions of the church on the whole Correct. and repenting. Correct. You yep. know, and, and yep. I think that's a big, huge, I think some of that's shifting a little bit. Yeah. I see some shift in that, but I, I, it makes so much sense um, yeah. that we're not what we would like to, you know, describe in, in what we look around as in the golden age right. because of our own lack of faithfulness, mm-hmm. yeah. not God's lack of faithfulness. Correct. Correct. And so the reality is Jesus is sanctifying his bride. Right. It says in Ephesians chapter five that he's going to present us to the father one day without spot or wrinkle. So look at the church right now and you tell me if she's ready to be presented to the father. Mm -hmm. The answer is no. And just like we all have a doctrine of personal sanctification, 
and we stress the fact that it's a process, right. the same is true corporately. Yes. That Jesus means for his bride to become uh, spotless and blemish-free, mm-hmm. which I take to be a, a simultaneous kind of process right. with the taking over of the nations right. under uh, under uh, discipleship to Christ. Um, that these are that this is what he's doing. So on the one hand, this is about the salvation of the world because uh, Jesus meant it when he said, "For God so loved the world mm-hmm. that he gave his only begotten Son." That he means to save many. Mm-hmm. That he means for this to sp- this thing to spread out globally. But while he's saving the world, he's also sanctifying his bride, which is part of the reason for the process. Right. Right. That to state it again this way, that he wants his people to be the kind of people who can enjoy the destination when they get there. Mm. And uh, last thing I'll say on this question is just a little bit of an an analogy for why would God allow for the kinds of setbacks that we have and the kind of pressure and the Mm -hmm. kind of trials and the struggle and the unfaithfulness or whatever. Um, in, I don't remember what year it was. I think Ava was, my oldest daughter was like six and we had the bright idea of taking her with us to Italy. And, uh, (laughs) that experience was lost on my six-year-old child. Oh, absolutely. We took her because we had some friends who were living over at the time, there at the time. And she had been really close and uh, it hurt her heart when her friend moved away to Italy. And so when we were going to go over there, we said, Ava, we'll take you. We want you to be able to see your friend. Right. And, uh, you know, we went to the Naples Archaeological Museum. Mm-hmm. We went to Pompeii and saw the wreckage there. You know, we're looking at castles that were built in the 1300s, you know, like right. all of these sorts of things. And you know how bored my six-year-old was? <laughs> that experience was totally lost on her because right. she didn't have the emotional and intellectual equipment or even the moral equipment, I mm-hmm. would even add. Right, right. Because being able to take in beauty has something to do with morality. Mm. Uh, and so anyway— that would take us into other places, right. so I'll leave it aside. But uh, she was not yet developed enough mm-hmm. to enjoy the place that we took her. Mm. And God's not going to let that happen to his church. I love that. I love that. I think that's a great place to to wrap up, unless Sounds you had good. anything else to add. Nope. No. Um, I do want to just add here a little bit of our conversation today, um, earlier, texting back and forth. Um, and I just want to leave everyone with this because I think it's super important. Um, Wes was reminding me um, that we often underestimate how long it takes to thoroughly understand a position, an argument, or a philosophy. We often want to fast track the path to mastery, and we're uncomfortable when we encounter something we haven't thought through yet. Um, we'll be in a better spot if we can be excited by hearing new things and considering them whether, rather than immediately feeling threatened by them. And so that's, I'm just going to leave you with that bit of encouragement. I needed that as well. It's easy for us to, as you described to me the other day, get tribalistic about mm. this and immediately be rejecting people and trying to put them in certain boxes and all of that rather than listening to the argument, comparing it to scripture. It takes thought you know, and time and intention. And so I just want to leave all of you with that encouragement. And hopefully you found uh, some solid answers today, (laughs) (laughs) but we appreciate you being here. And uh, I'm going to let Wes go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Perfect. Uh, Father God, uh, we're so grateful for what we have to look forward to. And uh, we all agree on that, mm-hmm. uh, that what we have to look forward to, regardless of what you think is going to happen over the course of human history, uh, we do all fundamentally hold to a position of victory. Mm-hmm. We disagree about the details, mm-hmm. uh, but we are united in at least that much yes. um, that the Lord Jesus is going to split the sky and he is going to do uh, what all of us have been waiting and longing for him to do, that is namely to destroy and eradicate death mm. uh, from this world, from his world, because it belongs to him. Uh, and so, Father, we ask for unity uh, around all of those things. Uh, we ask for unity even in the marching orders, because again, mm-hmm. irrespective of your eschatological persuasion, uh, none of us needs to be persuaded of your clear commands, which right. is to say, here's how you must live. Here's how you must raise children. Here's how you must orient yourself in your marriage. Here's what a faithful church looks like. All of those things are clear, uh, even if we debate about some of the details as to what our obedience or disobedience to those things may produce or not produce in history. Uh, and so would you unite your people? Mm-hmm. Uh, I pray that we would be able to take these things as a wonderful opportunity to dive deeper into your word, um, not 
not as something that necessarily has to be combative or has to be stressful or has to be traumatic, but that rather we would just be a people who delights in Scripture. And so if I hear mm-hmm. something, even if it sounds wonky to me, hey, mm-hmm. praise God for the opportunity to open my Bible again. Mm-hmm. I love that thing. Mm-hmm. I love to hear from the Lord in it. Uh, and so I just pray that you would do uh, a great work of uh, of maybe even calming some who mm-hmm. found this um, to be uh, maybe even discouraging because they hadn't heard it before or it, uh, it challenged them in the way that they didn't want to be to be challenged. Uh, and instead, I pray that you would turn that into a, a spirit of, of glad exploration in your word. And we trust that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One last note, moms, are you looking to give your child a well-rounded education while also ensuring positive socialization opportunities and their ability to succeed in life? Consider joining a Classical Conversations community and homeschooling alongside local families. Led by a trained, licensed director, families learn through Classical Conversations proven Christ-centered curriculum together in a community. With locations in all 50 states and over 50 countries, there is bound to be a community near you. To find a community today, visit classicalconversations.com slash Dorinda. That's classicalconversations.com slash Dorinda, and I'll leave a link in the show notes.